This is a special broadcast of Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new Los Angeles. Tonight's program features John Philip Santos, producer, journalist, and author of Places Left Unfinished at the Time of Creation. Mr. Santos presents an elegy for identities. Who are we in this era of globalization? Mr. Santos begins with a reading from his work in progress, The Farthest Home is in an Empire of Fire. Nations came and went as ghostly as Aurora Borealis. Though born in El Norte, we were of the Tejanos and the Mexicanos, those oldest peregrinos of time, Indio como Español and all their ill-starred mestizo offspring, the children of the Mundo Nuevo. We were born of centuries of outliers, fellahin, frontera scribes and pobladores. We had been people of obsidian, caliche, mesquite, and sand. Clear streams of the Sabinas and Nueces, Medina and Guadalupe refreshed us. In a time when the world was slowly turning to chrome, though we did not notice it happening at first, we were unaware as our veins began to run colder when the mercury vapors first permeated our skin, gradually filtering into our ancient blood. We forgot the procession of the stars and the declension of the clouds. The algorithms and engines of creation were mapping their perfect quantum measures onto the grain of the voids, ether, palimpsests of countless hieroglyphs on a grain of sand. That was when all of our compasses turned to ash. Our bodies were fabricated anew out of a flesh and cobalt-colored light, making our bones conductors of the universal tones of knowledge and abandonment. If we had an origin, did we also have a destination? If you want to see the center of the universe, don't orbit anything. If you want to leave something that could last for eons, then write in planets and stars and read the sky like a book. That's a, a kind of an opening elegy. It's, it's delivered in this book, The Farthest Home is in an Empire of Fire. This voice is, is actually the voice of a, a cyborg Quixote ancestor from the future. His name is Cenote Siete. And he sort of shares the, um, the narration of the book with me. So it kind of alternates between autobiography and, and sci-fi. And, uh, and sort of encompasses a larger story than one family, I think, can contain. The story of how our cultures and our families relate to the process unfolding in the cosmos and, and where we are in that larger, vast context of creation. But from, from the voice of, of the cyborg Cenote Siete, I want to continue now with words of a muse. A muse who said, There is something to be told about us for the telling of which we all wait. We hurry to listen to stories of old human life, new human life, fancied human life, avid of something to while away the time of unanswered curiosity. We know we are explainable and not explained. Until the missing story of ourselves is told, nothing besides told can suffice us. We shall go on quietly craving it. My thought is that the explanation of ourselves can be the explanation of such mysteries, that in the missing story of ourselves can be all missing stories. Those are the words of Laura Riding Jackson, 
poet and literary evangelist, she called herself, whose life spanned the 20th century. And I corresponded with her for several years when I was young. In the 1930s, she had notoriously repudiated her early work as a poet. And in fact, she'd repudiated poetry itself to pursue what she felt was a higher calling to true telling of the missing story that she alludes to in this quote, a project which she uh, never completed. She died in 1991. Poetry for her was artifice. It was a machinery of false distraction. But she had this feverish curiosity about this story, this idea of a lost or an absent, unnamed story. And, and that left a deep imprint on me, um, a question really about how the path of being a writer relates to that search, that search and that quest for, for the missing story. But any writer comes to the question of where you look for the missing story. And along with other writers of these times in poems and in prose and by any other means necessary, I looked for them in nearly forgotten family tales, the neglected words and worlds of the viejitas and the viejitos in San Antonio, the keepsakes, the histories, the documents and artifacts hidden away in libraries. And there were stories of the journeys that brought part of the family to South Texas, other ancestors who were there before it became Texas, before the Republic, before Nueva España, Nuevo Santander. Spain, completely forgotten in the family by my time, beckoned like some other lost home. But there was always a question of what came before that and before that and so on and so on. But a few years back, during one of the um, book tours I did for Places, I was invited onto a radio talk show in New York City. And I'd been a fan of this particular host for many years, listening to his radio show while I was writing, in fact. And uh, he was an august, bearded, New York Brahmin type. So I told him, you know, with great enthusiasm, I'd been a, ho a fan of his as the show was about to begin and there was Tex-Mex music, accordion music, tinkling in the background as my musical introduction. You won't be a fan when we're done, he sniped at me just before introducing me on the air. And he finished the introduction and welcome to the show. Well, he was right. During the interview, he variously disparaged Mexican and Chicano art and literature. He disrespected Tex-Mex food from San Antonio, comparing it unfavorably to the sublime sauces of central Mexico and seemed primed by his producer's notes to attack me as a rabid, bloodthirsty multiculturalist determined to eclipse and vanquish the peerless Western traditions of literature, philosophy, and culinary taste. So I was explaining to him that the book was in part an autobiography and in part a meditation on the legacy of Mexico's indigenous origins among the Mexican-Americans I grew up with in Texas. You don't look like you have a drop of Indian blood in you, he retorted. And a drop would be all it takes, right? I replied. <laughs> he changed the subject very quickly. But it got me to thinking that maybe part of the missing story is in the blood, after all. Or at least a big part of it we've ignored until very recently with the discovery of DNA 50 years ago. Geneticists tell us that not only does the genome contain a blueprint for the making of the human body, it's also a hard drive of our ancestral past. It's a vast mestizo codex of our origins and diasporas across the planet. 
going back to the very beginning in unicellular life. While this sort of document is still accessible only to very few scientists, these same geneticists tell us we'll soon be able to read our DNA in a kind of vernacular. We'll be able to bring it into our homes and read it among ourselves and with our parents and our children. For now, if we could read one letter a second from, from this document, the 3.1 billion A's, C's, T's, and G's of what is a, a three-dimensional spiral text, it would take 100 years to read your genetic code. Matt Ridley, the author of Genome, the Autobiography of a Species in 23 Chapters, puts it this way, there is something hard, indivisible, quantum, and particulate at the heart of our inheritance, an unbroken chain of copyings over four billion years. Biologist Robert Pollack describes DNA as a precise copy of our soul and complete inheritance, one that is more ancient than any human artifact. So geneticists such as Pollock and here in California at Stanford, Luca Luigi, Cavalli Sforza, and Brian Sykes tell us that our DNA, which is not only comprehensive in its recall, but that it is time-coded, it will reveal the full history of our ancestors and their million-year-long wanderings across the planet, forever into the past in a sense, infinite recall, and this document always already was a story going on, always being added to, but in effect without anyone to read it. And we are the first generation to begin doing that. So what will we find there? What does it contain in the way of that missing story of ourselves? Is there really one story or are there many stories? Again from, from Laura, I propose that you seek in yourselves remembrance of the before and tell what you find and believe your words. And with that simple charge, Laura writing Jackson, as she came to be known, shared her compass for a search into ourselves that was both uncompromising and despite her own avowed repudiation, poetic. The remembrance of this before seemingly so mysterious and formless and abstract. It reminds me these days of the Hubble telescope, the way that the Hubble telescope has given us a lens into the early history of the cosmos. And by peering deep into the recesses of the universe, it has also extended the human gaze, the human mind, the human spirit into the recesses of time, the time of creation, the cosmos, the time of the galaxy, our solar system, the Earth. So how am I, a humble Chicano scribe from South Texas in an extended exile in New York City, with it were L.A., how am I implicated in that story? What does it make of all of the stories that we were given, the stories that were passed down, losing a little more each generation, but where do those stories belong in that, in that greater story? If we could invent a Hubble telescope that could gaze deeply into the human heart, what would we see? Like the Hubble, it would have to be a wondrous, subtle telescope at powerful mirrors that would be milled, smoothed, and polished to gather the very faintest of light, the very faintest of reflections, showing us greater detail than we could ever imagine. And just as the Hubble has done in the material universe, extending our gaze farther into the past than we can fathom. So how would what we see there change us? And how could it not change us? The Hubble has shown us 
amazing sights. Gargantuan, luminous, rainbow-colored dust clouds nurturing new stars and galaxies, spiral neon nebulae whipsawing into one another, black holes extinguishing starlight forever, and the still adamantine light of primeval stars that were shining in the earliest eons after the Big Bang. We've all marveled at those pictures, but how have they changed our understanding of the universe we find ourselves in, and how have they changed enlarged or transformed how we think of who we are. Like the discovery of DNA at the molecular end of creation, these immense cosmic spectacles raise questions about how we think of who we are and how our stories fit into that larger story of creation. How do we come into the story? Where are we in the story? And how far along in the story are we? That's a particular, particularly important question these days. To put it differently, how long have you been Mexican? How long have you been Armenian, Uzbeki, Jewish, African? Has it been 100 years, 500, 1,000 or more? How much time do we need to begin to think of ourselves as irrefutably of a certain culture or a national tradition? How much of that story does your family still remember and pass on? I have a friend in New York whose family he claims, can trace their lineage back to the 13th century Mongol community of the Caucasus. But that remotest reach is uncommon. For all of the talk of the culture wars these days, more prevalent among many Americans is the idea that they have no heritage. I'm a mongrel, this one black kid told me in a class I taught some years back in a settlement house in New York City's neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen. I don't come from anywhere, he added. I'm from the Bronx. In an old Smith song, the honorary Chicano Mancunian Morrissey, uh, he captured this feeling of urban, suburban, American anti-identity perfectly singing, I am son and heir to nothing in particular. A small coda wherein the Lopez and the Velas appear in medias res of a long Iberian saga. Though some of my ancestors were Spanish Tejanos, early settlers in the rugged northern frontier of colonial Mexico, later Texas, none of us had ever felt particularly connected to Spain. It made no difference that the Lopez and Velas, my mother's parents' families, might have been in Spain already hundreds of years at the time of the first encounters of the New World. Perhaps they were Christians, perhaps Muslim, or perhaps Jewish, as had been long rumored among the Velas, my grandmother's kin. There would have been some grandfather, perhaps a grandmother, who decided to risk everything for a caravela ride to the New World, likely never to see Spain again. Once in the New World, our Mexican ancestors conjured a new sense of home for us in these lands, reciprocally forgetting the distant past, even as we began to feel as if we had always been in the tierras of the Mundo Nuevo, as if our forgotten past, our genesis, was nonetheless surely of those same dear and familiar homelands of Texas and Mexico. The Spanish ancestors were not really people of home, they were outliers from the start of our story in Las Americas, fellahin nomads from whatever their Spanish past was, willing to leave all they knew behind once and for all in search of a new way of life in an unimagined place. Perhaps they were confident that the past would remain 
where it had always been, if only abandoned, lost, and swallowed up like the enchanted continents of the myths of Mew or Atlantis that live on in memory long after any map survives detailing their coastlines and whereabouts. Because of that long estrangement across generations and hundreds of years, there were no living memories of Spain in the Lopez Vela families. Where had we come from? Uncle Lico found echoes of our ancestors in Villa de Camargo, Guerrero Viejo, and Ciudad Mier, the historic farthest outposts of Nueva España founded in the 1730s, already very late in the story of that world. Today, those towns nestle in the south bank of the Rio Grande across the border from Roma, Texas. Later, dwindling over time, the family resettled in Laredo, then went to Catula. By then, all that was left of the Velas was my grandmother, Leandra, who had six children, and her albino sister, Fermina, who had died childless. Finally, the bedraggled survivors of the old family lines made their way up the last stretch of dusty highway to San Antonio, where my generation was born. I don't remember grandmother ever mentioning anything to me about our grand family's origins, Spanish or otherwise. She spoke Spanish fluently and always with her maid, Maria Moya, but never a word to us in the old tongue. By the time she settled into one of her duplex properties, a cake box, shutterboard, shambles of a house on West Russell Street in San Antonio, a one-time noble neighborhood that now had a decrepit, long-settled look on it, as grandmother had retreated into keeping her stoic, though somewhat disapproving, vigil over the late 20th century. But even as we were all becoming suburban Americans, molecule by molecule, Uncle Lico was determined to reassert our lost Spanish dignity, our history of one-time entitlement in the storied age of the colonial frontera. His quest accelerated and grew more feverish as he neared his unanticipated death. No one knew who that first ancestor might have been, except for Uncle Lico, our family's self-appointed genealogist, who was certain we were descendants of a certain king of Spain, whose name, inexplicably, had been long ago forgotten. As far as Uncle Lico was concerned, so exalted were our origins that among the Lopez and Velas, even a king's name could be abandoned after a little spell of time. We might just as easily have been descended from the king of Lemuria, all those bodies falling like snowflakes in the Kelvin chill air of all time. So how long do you imagine remaining Chinese or Japanese, Russian, Persian, Indonesian? Will your offspring be Navajo like you in 50 years, another 100 or 500, 1,000? Can you imagine your progeny remaining culturally the same as you for 10,000 years more? Does it make a difference? And I'm not talking about assimilation, which is an historical process. It comes and goes, it ebbs and flows in the passing tides of nations, history, and politics. In the longer view of our imaginary Hubble of the human heart, there is this deeply embedded process of becoming, that emerges as the real human story, the one that links our own species to the forces that are at play in the universe that we find ourselves in. How do we become something new and at what cost for all that we must leave behind? 
this is really the crux, in a sense, of the, of the so-called culture wars, which perhaps might be better termed as worldwide wars of identity. Globalization, especially the, the human process of globalization, mestizaje, is changing all of us. And many choose not to change, or even to seek to reverse change. I'm not talking here just about Wahhabi jihadists or the American evangelical right. I'm talking about folks like George Will and Samuel Huntington. Last year, Will opined in favor of the Ward-Connerly Initiative here in California that would have prohibited the government from gathering most racial data from its citizens. Not ordinarily thought of as a champion of intermarriage and race mixture, Will explained that as a nation, we're becoming so mesticized, so mestizo, that racial data would be meaningless, thereby dismissing the value of any ongoing affirmative action, whether in education or the professions. And Will points out that the census of 2000 allowed Americans to categorize themselves through 63 different racial combinations, quoting him now. But surely there are not 63 races. He wrote, the 63 categories did not include what Tiger Wood calls himself, Cabalnasian, meaning a mixture of Caucasian, Black, Indian, and Asian. More and more Americans are like Woods, a tossed salad of racial and ethnic antecedents, he wrote. The New York Times checked in with their own take on this phenomenon, publishing a lengthy article last December in the Sunday paper's style section on what they called Generation EA, meaning ethnically ambiguous. Citing the growing use of mixed race models in fashion photography as evidence that Americans are beginning to see themselves in new kinds of faces. But Will isn't really celebrating America's mestizo future, making the same point about Ward Connerly's own mixed race heritage and progeny. He concludes, Connerly is not black or white. He is American, period. But then what is American? Our DNA will testify to the fact that Americans have always been mestizo. Jefferson kept his own mestizo children as slaves. We're just grappling now with how such an identity might change the public sense of what it means to be American and what kind of story we will tell about how we came to be this way. In his soon-to-be-released book, Who We Are, the Harvard historian Samuel Huntington, author of The Clash of Civilizations, writes, America was created by 17th and 18th century settlers who were overwhelmingly white, British, and Protestant. Their values, institutions, and culture provided the foundation for and shaped the development of the United States in the following centuries. He asks, will the United States remain a country with a single national language and a core Anglo-Protestant culture? And what is it that most threatens this legacy? According to Huntington, it's not radical Islam or ultra-liberal one-worlders. Instead, the republic's future hangs in the balance due to the intractable Hispanics. Set on keeping their language, staking claim eventually to their historic homelands, and populating too quickly and too numerously. He writes, by ignoring this, Americans acquiesce to their eventual transformation into two peoples with two cultures, Anglo and Hispanic, and two languages, English and Spanish. 
and his real clincher, they could eventually undertake to do what no previous immigrant group could have dreamed of doing, challenge the existing cultural, political, legal, commercial, and educational systems to change fundamentally not only the language but also the very institutions in which they do business. But isn't that what the founding fathers and the first settlers in the Americas did? In human terms, in genetic terms, the story of the United States is being written inside the larger story of the New World, America entre las Americas. Ever since the arrival of the Europeans and then everyone else in these lands, we've been on the path of becoming globalized mestizos, our destiny as a species if we last long enough to mix our traditions, beliefs, heritage, blood, and bodies. And of course, mestizaje has always been a part of world history and culture, from the days of early man to Mesopotamia to the Mediterranean foment of Greek and later Hellenic and Roman culture and on and on. But 500 years ago, with the inception of the Mundo Nuevo, mestizaje becomes world history. And in deep time, 500 years in the past was 10 minutes ago or less. We're just in the beginning of this. So it's no wonder there's so much confusion and contradiction and feeling in the dark for the righteous way forward. In addition to so many writers of color in our time, starting in the mid-19th century, Latin American artists like Hermenegildo Bustos and Frida Kahlo and thinkers like Jose Martí and Jose Vasconcelos explored their prophetic vision of mestizaje. And so did Walt Whitman in Song of Myself, where he writes, I am of young and old, of the foolish as much as the wise, regardless of others, ever regardful of others, maternal as well as paternal, a child as well as a man, stuffed with the stuff that is coarse and stuffed with the stuff that is fine, one of the nations of many nations, the smallest the same and the largest the same. The worldwide rise recently of, of murderous nationalisms and fundamentalisms evidence the sometimes destructive role that cultural identity can play in world affairs, especially lethal in our age of the technologies of mass destruction. And our time has also offered the first chance to tell and celebrate many of the neglected and ignored heritage stories, in some cases after centuries of denial, exclusion, and oppression. But at the very same moment, we're called on to remember who we were, where we came from, and in a sense to go beyond, to transform ourselves and our societies, to become something new, a república cosmica. So in this vexed moment, we are preparing to read the chronicles of our blood, seeking that missing story of ourselves. But our DNA really tells us we are not who we think we are. We have no one true homeland, perhaps only the one in Africa. And we must delve further, more deeply. And don't misunderstand my passion for DNA as seeking to appeal to poets to submit themselves to the language of science. As the biologist Robert Pollock observes, humanists often shrink from a text that is constructed by natural selection, DNA and written in an invisible chemical medium. This is really about claiming cosmology, DNA, and the quantum world as a medium for poetry, for vision, 
going beyond however we've been instructed to see the human genome as an exclusively biological and medical fact. Can't we just tell stories about our abuelitas and our beautiful homelands? Well, it's a good place to begin, but there's a lot more to the story that I want to hear. And the way things are going, even if it's indelible in our blood, the time to tell the story is now, and the sooner the better. Thank you very much. That was producer, journalist, and author John Philip Santos. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to fostering greater intellectual and cultural fellowship in our diverse urban landscape. The Zocalo Public Lecture Series brings together Angelinos from across racial and partisan lines and is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC, the Los Angeles Times, Latino Weekly, and the Shepherd Broad Foundation. Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., is made possible by the American Jewish Committee and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles. For more information, please visit our website, zocalola.org.